maize, and so we went in to buy a bag of maize. And um, as we went in, it was a Saturday, it was a hot day, and so we were, um, we're sitting there and I was just chatting with some of the guys and there was somebody there who had some sodas to sell. Uh, and it wasn't, wasn't refrigerated soda, this is, this is off the grid in, in the bush. And so, but they do have sodas, it's like a grape, they had some grape sodas or something like that in a plastic bottle. And so uh, I got one for my daughter. And she'd been playing with, with a, a little girl in the village, uh, one of her friends, and uh, she asked, again, she's the fair one, she asked, should I share this with my friend? And I said, yeah, share it with your friend, but maybe just drink half of it first and then give her the second half uh, so we don't go back and forth here. Um, and so she drank half, and then she handed the second half of this soda to her friend. And what her friend did is immediately she, she took the soda and she asked for the cap. And she put the cap onto that soda really tight, and she just held it to her, to her lips and just walked around going like this. And I watched her, she, she, she was done there, so she walked off and she was going to look for her friends. And I walked, watched her go over to, his, to her friends. She wasn't even drinking it, wasn't even enjoying it. She was just showing it off. And she was just constantly uh, taking swigs out of the soda. And it was all just to excite jealousy, to excite envy, so that her friends would look at her and would say, oh, I wish I had what she wants, or I wish I had what she has. I want what she has. And so, uh, really what, what, what that is, is, is taking something that you're given, and it's using it for your own glory. And so when we talk about it at a kid's level, uh, it's, it's kind of cute because they're so, they're so powerless, but they, 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 they do something and, and we think it's, it's cute. But when we, we fast, that, fast forward that picture to an adult, uh, adults are still doing all the same things. And it's not, it's not cute anymore. Uh, and a child who never learns to, um, to use well what they're given becomes an adult who doesn't know how to use well what they're given. Becomes an adult who doesn't s submit to authority. So with an adult, it's actually a, it's a perversion of the way that God has made us to be. And so the problem is that everyone, really, with the things that we've received, we want to become the focal point of everyone else's world. We want to be the focal point of, of reality. And there's, there's this general feeling uh, that, especially sometimes in the West, but uh, really around the world, there's this general feeling that God gives us things, or that God made us primarily to give us good things. So that's, that's sort of common uh, to hear these days. And that, that not only is, that, is it that, but also God gives us good things primarily because he wants us to be happy. And so that, that's just not true. God gives us good things, uh, and people think that it's primarily because he wants us to be happy. So Bible, the Bible tells us um, where all these yearnings sort of for self-glory and these yearnings to be, to be the own our own determiner of, uh, of, what is, of what is good, to be the focal point of reality. Uh, the Bible tells us that this goes all the way back to, to the beginning when God created the world. And he made Adam and Eve, and he made uh, the sun and the moon and the stars, and he made everything, and he made it all good. And uh, he made the trees and the animals and everything that's in the sea, and, and he made it all good. He made Adam and Eve, and he made them good. And then Adam and Eve decided that God, their creator, that he could not be good if he would withhold something from them. And so they decided that submission to God is not good. They decided that they could judge what they could and couldn't have. And so they acted as their own gods, 
Most of us know the story. They pursued their own glory, and we still bear the consequences of that today. And so from that day until today, there has been this fundamental uh, wrongness about the world. Uh, God still sits on his rightful throne, but individually we all act as though he doesn't. He always has and he always will, but I act as though I sit on that throne. And you act as though you sit on that throne. So we pretend that we're the focal points of history. I pretend that this world revolves around me. And you do the same, and everything that we receive is perversely used for our own glory rather than to pursue his glory. It's used for our own satisfaction rather than to pursue God's greater good. And so today I want to look at uh, Revelation chapters 4 and 5, and I want to show you two, two things from the passage today. Um, I want to show you that Jesus is the focal point of history, that there is no other, and that we receive in order to increase his glory. So the context for, the, for the, these two chapters, uh, Revelation uh, is mostly about judgment, but first it's about the church not being perfect. So in Revelation chapters 2 and 3, we see very clearly that the church is not perfect. There are those who are walking in pride. There are those who are uh, permitting false teaching in the church. They're tolerating sexual immorality in the church. There's hypocrisy in the church. There's much lukewarm faith. Uh, people being lulled by the world. This is the church that's presented in Revelation 2 and 3. So the church is not perfect. We see that. On the other side of chapters 4 and 5, we see Revelation 6 through 19, which is all about the judgment that's coming as a result of sin and Satan in this world and as a result of the imperfections of the church. Uh, so judgment is coming. Uh, so let's read Revelation chapter 4 and then... Uh, We'll, we'll go through that, and then we'll go on to Revelation chapter 5. So Revelation chapter 4, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature is like a lion, the second living creature is like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. 
So I want to look at chapter 4 here. And chapters 4 and 5 of Revelation are, are two layers of the throne room of God. So both chapter 4 and chapter 5 describe the throne room of God. First we have this initial layer, this initial view of the throne of God, and then chapter 5 will flesh it out a bit further. So let's look at initial, the initial view of the throne of God. So just to orient ourselves, I want you to think about the fact that this is actually eternal. This is right now. This is God sitting on his throne as we're gathered here to worship today. So he's not, he's not sitting on his throne like he's resting, but he's, he's firmly placed on his throne. He cannot be removed from his throne. So we have God on his throne, and we have 24 elders gathered around the throne on their 24 thrones with their 24 crowns. And most commentators agree that the elders represent the church. Uh, those who have, been, have gone on to, to be with the Lord, uh, the redeemed saints who are in heaven, are currently gathered around his throne as representatives of us and of, and of the broader church. Uh, so, so we've got God on his throne, you've got the elders around the throne. In front of the, th the throne, now in verse 5, you have the Spirit of God. That's, that's there in front of the throne. Now here, uh, it refers to the seven torches. Uh, in chapter 5, uh, it refers to the, se the, seven, the seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. In Zechariah, oh, sorry, the eyes of the Lamb in, in chapter 5. In, the, in Zechariah, he saw a similar vision, and he, he refers to the, the seven eyes of God that roam across the earth. So this is a, a, a representation of God's omnipresence, the, his ability to see and be everywhere at all times. So we have in front of the throne uh, the, the Spirit of God in these torches. We have around the throne the elders, God on his throne, and then on each side of the throne we have these, these living creatures, these beings. Uh, Ezekiel, Ezekiel and Isaiah uh, both saw uh, these same beings. One of them called them cherubim, the other seraphim. So sort of this exalted order of angels that's powerful and mighty that's also gathered there around, around God's throne, and they're associated with God's power and with God's judgment. In Revelation 6, it's those four beings, those four living creatures that pronounce, uh, come, when each time that one of the, horse, the horsemen come upon the earth as a part of the judgment that comes on the, earth, on the world. And so these beings are associated with God's power. They're on each side of his throne. The spirit is in front of his throne. The elders are around his throne. And there is God in awesome power on his throne. And this is not, this is, this, is, this is now, and this is not intended right now. In this moment, this is God sort of on the poise of judgment. And so this is not intended to be a comforting vision, really, if it comes right down to it. This is God about to judge the world. And so this is intended to be brilliant and powerful. This is intended to be terrifying as we look upon God who is ready for judgment. So there are signs of the coming judgment. Uh, we see in verse 5, where it refers to the, to the Spirit of God. It refers to seven torches. Before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, the Spirit of God had previously been referred to in, in uh, Revelation 2 as the seven golden lampstands. That's a much more comforting picture than torches. So lampstands are sort of indoor instruments. They bring warmth. They bring light when you're trying to read or have dinner. Now, a torch... In, 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 in uh, the Old Testament, torches were often instruments of war. 
So you think of Gideon with the torches and the jars. Uh, uh, it's a torch is not a, it's not a gentle instrument. And so the gentle lamps that were when, when Jesus was speaking to the churches have now become blazing torches as we're looking at the throne of God in preparation for judgment. So the Spirit of God that was sent to be a comforter for those who would follow Christ, would submit themselves to Christ, is now becoming, uh, the spirit comforter is, has become a spirit consumer as God is preparing to judge the world. So the comforter for those who would follow Christ becomes the consumer of those who will refuse to bow the knee to Christ. So in addition to this, just before that in verse 5, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And again, these are, these are signs of judgment. So in uh, chapter 8, um, one of the angels grabs a censer and takes coals from uh, the, the, the offering to the Lord and throws it down on the earth and it's accompanied with rumblings and lightning and peals of thunder. And again, that's, a, that's not a comforting vision to, look, to think about lightning. I don't, I don't know if you've ever been in a lightning storm, um, but where we live, uh, people are regularly struck by lightning. It's a, it's a reality uh, out where we live. There are fewer trees, smaller trees, and... Um, I've had to walk across uh, an, open, an open expanse when there was a lightning storm going on, and it's terrifying. And the only thing that got me across that, that expanse was the knowledge that not one of those lightning bolts will strike apart from God's will. And so I walked across, and I'm, here I am today. But not everyone uh, has that same experience, and people are terrified, rightly terrified, of lightning. And so the proper response to this vision of the throne is, is, was, was Job's response when he reflected on God's glory. He said, will, will not his majesty terrify you? Or Isaiah's response, when he, when he had this, almost the same vision, he said, woe is me, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I've seen the Lord. And so this, this vision is intended to give us a fear of the Lord. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. However, even in the midst of the terror of this vision, uh, we see comfort. So one, one of the things that we see that's comforting here in verse 3, it says, around the throne was a rainbow. And a rainbow, the rainbow has been, been perverted in, in, in common, uh, the modern day, but the rainbow originally is a sign of God's covenant that he won't destroy the world again by a flood. It's a, it's a sign of God's mercy that he didn't destroy the entire world in the first place. So a rainbow around the throne in the midst of this terrifying vision is a sign of comfort for all those who are a part of God's covenant. It's, uh, it's comforting actually to know that this is an eternal view. God is, is on his throne. He's, he lives forever and ever. He's been on that throne forever and ever. It's not changing. He might he, 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 there's no chance that he won't be on that throne tomorrow. And so we, it's comforting to know that whatever we have right here is henceforth and forevermore. It's not changing. And it's comforting if, like those 24 elders, like the representatives of the redeemed church, if we uh, put ourselves in the right orientation before that throne, rather than... Uh, trying to usurp his glory, if we recognize his glory, 
and we bow our knees before before him. So if we look at the the response of the elders uh, when they heard the the living creatures call out glory to God, their response is they bowed their knees as they cast their crowns before the throne. They said, "Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created." So God here is on the verge of judging creation. And his redeemed people, his family, his children, are saying, you are worthy to judge creation because you created it in the first place. You're the only one worthy to judge creation. And so we see in the, in the elders, we see a submission to the Lord. And in submitting ourselves to God on his throne, we receive comfort. So submission is actually a good thing. Um, I want to move on to Revelation chapter 5. And so I'll read it now. If you have a Bible, I don't think it's on the screen, but if you have a Bible, you can read for, uh, with, with me. And we'll look at the next layer. So that's the first layer, this uh, throne room, this terrifying vision that can be comforting if you're in a right orientation before it. So let's look further at, uh, at this throne room. So Revelation 5, and I'll read verses 1 through 14. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and amongst the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain, with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them, saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. So this is now our expanded view of the throne. Same throne room, but we're, we're taking a closer look. So now we've taken out the magnifying glass. And so we first, first we see, again, this is the throne room and judgment is coming. We see God with, on his throne with the scroll of judgment in his right hand. And we see a powerful angel, a strong angel, ca calling out, who is worthy to come and to take this scroll? 
Who is worthy? And there's silence because there is no one who is worthy. There is no angel who is worthy. Not the archangel Michael or Gabriel, they're not worthy. There is no elder among those sitting around the throne. Not Peter, not James, not Paul. There's no one worthy. In all of creation, no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. There is no one worthy. And so John begins to weep. And he weeps because he knows that this scroll represents the making right of everything that's wrong in the world. So he knows that this scroll is, is what will bring judgment on sin and on death and on Satan. And there's no one who's worthy to open it. And so he begins to weep. And then one of the elders, sitting on one of those thrones, says to him, Weep no more, for behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, there is one. The lamb has seized control of the world's destiny. The resolution of world history depends on the opening of this scroll, and only the lamb is able to open it. And he's able to open it because of who he is and because of what he has done. It says here, he has conquered. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And so what we see now is, is really amazing to me. If you think about it, so we've got everything in all of creation gathered around the throne of God, worshiping the throne of God. And now suddenly the focus of that worship shifts to the Lamb who is before the throne of God. And so to me, it's kind of like if, you, if you're driving down the highway and you see in your rearview mirror and you only really see one light, but it's coming up behind you. And it might be a really bright light, but you can only really see one light. But then as it draws nearer, you realize that it's actually two lights, right? It's, it's headlights. But as from a distance, you see one light. And so initially we saw everyone gathered around worshiping God on his throne. And now as we take a closer look, we're seeing that God on his throne includes the lamb who has been slain, who is the only one worthy to judge the world. So focus of worship now shifts to the lamb. And if you ever need any doubt about the deity of Christ, just look at verse 8 here. When he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Those whose job it was to worship God on his throne are now falling down before the Lamb to worship Him because of what He's done. And so now we have a complete view of the throne of God. We have uh, chapter 4, which is the, the coming judgment and the appropriate terror that everyone should have in view of the coming judgment. And then here in verse 5 of chapter 5, we have the conquering sacrifice the Lamb who is worthy and able. And in now in verse 9, we have the complete ransom and eternal hope because of what the Lamb has done. For you were slain, and, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And so what we have here is we look through chapters 4 and 5, as, as, the, as, as it unfolds the true nature of the, of the throne room of God, we have this increasing crescendo of worship 
So if you look, uh, or if you just think back to um, chapter 4, in verse 8, worship of the Lord begins with the four beings, those four beings on each side, who call out, Holy, Holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty. And then that grows to the 24 elders in verses 10 and 11, who say, Worthy, worthy, worthy is the Lord who created all things. And then that grows here in chapter 5, verse 8. Now the elders have harps, and they have these uh, bowls, uh, golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So now the worship is gathered. Uh, it's, the, it's the beings, it's the elders, and now it's, it's also, they, they have musical instruments, and they have the prayers of the saints joining in the worship. And then as you take a step further, in verse 11, now around the throne are, are, is the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. So they now, all the angels around, are gathering in to the worship. And then it goes even a step further. And in verse uh, 13, it's now all creation. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them joining in the worship of God. And that's the complete worship of God with the Lamb who was slain in order to conquer, in order to give us, uh, in order to ransom us as a people for God. And so the main point of these two, these two chapters as we look across them is that Jesus is the focal point of history. It's, the whole point is to show us the reality of who Jesus is. And there's a, a passage in Colossians that really shows us well the reality of Christ in Colossians chapter 1, verses 16 through 20. As it's talking about who Jesus is, says, by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Everything that has been created was created through Christ. Everything that has been created was created for Christ. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything that exists, every molecule of your being is being held together by the will of Christ. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this is Christ. We, with the things that we have, we seek to give ourselves glory. But Christ, with all that he has, what has he done? He's, he's used his own being to reconcile to himself all things by the blood of the cross. So we focus on ourselves. We think about what I want. But he has reconciled us. So I, in my nature, I live for myself. You, in your nature, you live for yourself. Or like, I picture myself as an ant sitting on the, one of those steps of the throne of God, calling out and saying, hey, look at me. When right behind me, right around me, is all this glorious vision of the throne room of God. And so for doing that, though, for seeking to bring glory to myself, I should be terrified of this judgment that's coming. And you should be terrified of this judgment that's coming. 
Because if God really is on his throne, if Jesus really is the focal point of history, then me drawing attention to myself saying, oh, look at my great athletic ability, or look at how smart I am, or look at how great of an artist I am, that's taking glory away from God. And so I should be terrified. And yet, even while we were still sinners, Christ died to ransom us to the Lord. Even us in our sin, even us crying out to be looked at, to be admired, it, even us in that moment, Christ chose to reconcile to himself all things by the blood of his cross. As, as verse 9, chapter eight, 5, verse 9 says, He was slain and he ransomed. He was slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. So if we bow the knee to the only Redeemer, the only r Ransomer, the only one who has given himself so that we might have hope, so that we might not be terrified, if we bow the knee to him who sits on the rightful throne, who is the center of all creation, who holds our very hearts beating right now, who allows us to continue in existence, if we bow the knee to him, then that terror becomes comfort. Then we don't need to be terrified, but we gain wisdom. And we recognize one further thing, that if Jesus, or because Jesus, is the focal point of, of history, everything that we receive now is actually, we receive it in order to increase his glory. So if you look back at uh, chapter 4, look at verses 8 through 10. Uh, so here we have the, the living creatures around the throne. And we have the elders around the throne. And it says that uh, the living creatures, day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever, and they cast their crowns before the throne. So I want you to picture this with me. So you've got the creatures giving glory, the elders falling down, and then casting their crowns or laying their crowns at the feet of the cross. And how often does this happen? It happens repeatedly, right? Day and night. They never cease to do it. So picture this. So you've got elders sitting on the throne, wearing crowns in the presence of, of God. So uh, those crowns have been received from God. And the creatures call out, holy, holy, holy. The elders bow down, worthy, worthy, worthy. They lay their crown at his feet. And then a second later, they're back on their thrones with their crowns back on their head. And the living creature calls out and the elders bow down. And they lay their crowns at his feet. And then they're back on their thrones with their crowns back on their head. And repeat. And this is a picture of what it means to, to receive a crown from God. These elders, they're not worried about their own glory. They're not thinking about their own reward. They're not thinking about their own honor or position. They're so focused on the worth and the glory of God that they're just looking around for the, whatever they have of greatest value. They find that thing that they've received from God and they're constantly offering it to the Lord. And God, in His wisdom and in His glory, 
he is returning that crown back to that head. So God gives us good things. He does. But he doesn't give us good things to make us happy. Not just to make us happy. We can find our happiness in using all good things that we receive for his glory. So what do the crowns represent? There are various places in the, in the Bible, lots of places where it refers to crowns. Um, there's uh, the crown of life in James chapter 1. Uh, and in Timothy and Revelation, it refers a lot of places to the crown of life. Uh, in James it says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So there's a crown of life, which I think is associated with, with salvation. So those who bow the knee and remain faithful uh, receive the crown of eternal life. They receive salvation. Uh, that's one uh, representative of, of what is that crown. Now what is it that they're, they're taking off? They're laying at the feet of the Lord. Um, a better one for this particular situation, because you're not going to, obviously you're not going to remove your salvation uh, to, to worship the Lord. But in, uh, in 1 Peter, in talking about faithful pastors, faithful elders, faithful shepherds of the flock, 1 Peter chapter 5, uh, it says, uh, When the chief shepherd, shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. So in a very real sense, there is an eternal crown that the that the faithful pastors, faithful leaders of the, of the church will receive uh, for all of eternity. And I think, uh, realistically, this is probably the crown that those elders are laying down at the, feet of the, uh, at the feet of the throne. They have shepherded well, they're representatives of the church, they have shepherded well the church of God, and they're laying down what they've received as their reward, they're laying it down uh, to, to worship Him from whom they received it. And so this is, this is eternity. This is worshiping the Lord. Now, let's take it a step further to the here and the now. Uh, if we turn to Psalm chapter 8. So this is, we're talking about eternity. So there's the crown of salvation. There's the crown of, of reward, of glory. Um, in, uh, for all of eternity. There's also reference to a crown that we receive for authority, for dominion, for glory in this life. So Psalm chapter 8, we read it a bit earlier. If we look at verses 3 through 7, sorry, 3 through 6, it says, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? You've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings, and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. So here now, it's talking about a crown received in this life. A crown received with humility. Who am I to receive this crown from the Lord? Who can create light just by speaking? Who am I to receive glory or dominion over the works of His hands? Not the works of my hands, but the works of His hands. But He gives us crowns in this life. He gives us glory in this life. It should be received with humility and it comes with responsibility. So my challenge to everyone is to think about your crown. So we each have a realm, we each have an area of dominion, we each have a responsibility and an honor 
We each have a crown received, and it's been and we've received it to increase his glory. So what's more glorious than having a crown? What's the person who gives you the crown? What's more glorious than just saying thank you for a crown is taking it off and offering it back to the person who gave it to you. And so we each have to recognize that now is the practice ground for all of eternity. So we can practice in this world laying our crowns at his feet. And so each one of us has to think about what is our crown. Think about where you are. Think about what you have. Think about what you're doing. Think about who is with you. Where has God placed you? Do you have a job? Do you have a neighbor? Do you have a spouse? Do you have children? Are you a student? You have an area of responsibility. Even my, uh, not the youngest, she doesn't do chores yet, but my son, who would eat all that chocolate himself, he has a responsibility. After we eat, he wipes down the table or he sweeps the floor. It's an area of dominion. It might just be for a moment, but it's an area to do something well for God's glory and to take that crown and offer it back to the Lord. Not by doing it just to get it done and move on, but it's an opportunity, and we all have an area of dominion. And it's an area of glory that God has given you right now. You can invest in other people. Take someone under your wing who's a newer believer. It's for you to think about um, and for, for you to, to, to think about how you can use what you have received in order to increase His glory rather than your own. So if you've received it, then you have a responsibility to use it well, to not squander it. I was thankful to sit under John's teaching last week. We talked about the Eighth Commandment, not just being about not stealing, but about being a good steward of all that God has given us. That's how you use your crown well. It's one way to use your crown well, is to not squander it. If sin is stopping you from using well the crown that you've been given, then cut it off and gouge it out. Maybe you can't, you can't do it on your own strength, but for those who are resting in Christ, we receive His Spirit to give us strength to cut off and to gouge out. There are things that aren't sinful that stop us from using our, our crowns well. And Hebrews tells us to lay those things aside. Don't carry dead weight. If you have a, a, something that you enjoy, but it keeps you from using well what God has given you, then you need to lay it aside. And we use, so we, we, we need to use our crowns well, use your responsibility, use your dominion well, think about uh, your area of dominion. And it's not always a, a stagnant thing. Like I was saying with my son, one moment it's, it's cleaning the table, the next moment it's sweeping the floor, another moment it's making his bed, but it's an area of dominion. So use it well, don't squander it, and use it to increase his glory, not your own. So when you do something well, people will praise you. 
There's nothing wrong with praising something done well. But there is something wrong with getting puffed up when someone praises you for doing something well. So you can use your glory, you can use your honor, you can use your skill and your talent and your intelligence and your beauty. You can use it to point to everyone to yourself. Or you can use it to point to the one who gave you all of those things. The one who redeemed you so that you don't need to live in terror. The right and central figure in all of history. One of my favorite um, uh, characters from scripture is, is John the Baptist. I really am motivated by John the Baptist. And the reason I love his example so much is because Jesus himself said that for those born of women, there is none, there is no prophet greater than John the Baptist. Now his greatness rests in his proximity to the Christ, but he was great. And people came from all around to, to, to listen to him. And as they were listening to him, they said, aren't you the one? You know, baptize me, let me follow you. And John constantly said, it's not me. There's one coming so much greater that I can't even touch his sandals. I'll baptize you with water, but he'll baptize you with the Spirit. And behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Go and follow him. So John recognized the crown, the authority that God was given to him. And he used it to constantly step aside and point people to Christ. And so that's our calling, is, is to, to use our crowns likewise. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have given yourself to ransom us, to be a people of God from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Lord, we thank you that you are worthy of all of our praise and all of our glory. God, we thank you that you, in your wisdom and in your goodness, you give us good things. Sometimes for a moment, sometimes for a lifetime. Lord, and I pray that as you have given us good things, Lord, that you will help us to take our eyes off of ourselves and to fix our eyes on you and to take these good things that we've received from you and to offer them back to you, and to use them, Lord, to point people toward you, rather than pointing them towards ourselves. Lord, I pray that you help each of us to search our hearts, and to search our lives, and to recognize what we have from you that can be used for your glory. Be glorified in us, Lord. Humble us, and help us to, to honor you with every, with every bit of strength that you give us. We pray that you help us to do this today and tomorrow and every day that comes, Lord. By your spirit, in your strength, and for your glory, we pray. Amen.